girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. Help us, any woman, see the sin of her days and ways. Stop, holy man. Throw away the cross. Face the master. Faith against faith. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? Well, a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. What do you know about that car? I know that the guy who owned the car before, Arnie, his daughter choked to death in Christine. Didn't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, I can change it. I was there, I saw it. Put your hand on the scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. I saw his face. I stood there. I did nothing. She's dying! Oh, man, wait till you hear this. What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? In the deadlights now. And you know what? It's true what they say. We all float down here. And you will, too. In fact, they all float. No, if they caught them, they had to make sure they could go on working. But they also had to make sure they could never run away. The operation was called hobbling. Any for God's. Shh, darling. Trust me. God's sake. It's for the best. Hey, please! Almost done. One more. God, I love you. Hello, Dave. Hello, listeners. Hello, Lee. And tonight we're going to be talking about Stephen King. Stephen King. Horror master. Oh, shit. Was that the gallows? No. Was that the sound of the gallows and a neck breaking? It was uh, it was a can of Fosters. Oh, right, Dave. Mind. Now this was your idea yes. to do Stephen King, and that was it was quite surprising to be honest because I never really discussed Stephen King books with you ever. Um, Not really. We so what, why did you want to do this? Because it just popped into my head. I think I'd been listening to a podcast that. <clears throat> talks about the difficult relationship between Stephen King and Stanley Kubik in the making yeah. of The Shining. And I just started thinking about Stephen King and what a remarkable career he's had. And also we watched The Shawshank Redemption. It's all based on mainly things we've watched, which tends to be the case with me with Stephen King. There's very little that I've ever read of Stephen King, but you have read a lot of Stephen King. My wife has read quite a lot of Stephen King. And um, yeah, I, it, I just thought, wow, he's such a great sub. Subject, you know, what a career, what an incredible career. I know, and he's still going, he's still like producing a book a year, sometimes two. Um, but I, I did tune out of Stephen King quite a long time ago, to be honest. I've not the last book I bought of his was The Outsider, which um, was like a non horror novel because he, he does obviously do, yeah, different genres, uh, 
Now, <clears throat> it's funny you should say I've read a lot of Stephen King because, to be honest, when I was thinking about it, I haven't. I've probably only read about oh. five or six of his books. I've I've started more than I've finished. That's a lot in my books, mate. <laughs> which might which might say something, to be honest. But I think typically when I read a novel, anyway. I might stop reading it. I might put it down because, to be honest, I prefer nonfiction to novels. Yeah. But he did have a massive effect on me as a teenager, Stephen King. The first adult book I ever actually read when I was about 13 was Christine by Stephen King. Right. And uh, I got out of the library. And I don't know why, because I was trying to think before, how did I get to know about Stephen King? Um, my dad didn't read him as far as I know my brother didn't have any books but maybe it was just seeing an intriguing cover in in the library well possibly but I, th- I think that might have been the same for me because whenever you went into like a bookshop when I was a kid and same would have been it would have been the same for you you'd see the Stephen King novels and they were so beautifully put out there I mean I remember seeing Salem's Lot and Carrie and The Shining and the covers looked great mm. you know so they were being sold in a way that film novelizations was were sold too. You know, they had really good covers on them, yeah. and uh, that was probably quite compelling as a kid. That probably helped. So he had a big marketing machine behind him, didn't he? Because that brilliant story that he tells, where his agent rang him up and him and his wife, is it Tabitha? Yeah. They were living in a, a really shitty little flat uh, in Bangor, Maine. And they were they were pretty poor, and they had two kids, I think, at the time. And then he just rang up and he said, uh, "Yeah, I've sold it. I've sold Carrie for uh, for." Uh, and he he didn't grasp what he said. So at first he thought he said four hundred dollars. I think he went four hundred dollars. Oh, okay, you know, four hundred dollars. I've sold. No, no, Steve, you got it wrong. And then he said, "What? It's forty thousand. <laughs> he sold it for four hundred thousand dollars. It's like one of these." amazing stories isn't it like rags to riches overnight literally yeah you know and then there's, he tells a great anecdote because he said he says that tabitha he threw it he threw the um <clears throat> the manuscript in the bin didn't he thinking mm. kind of kind of shit and, oh, no one want to read this crap blah, blah blah and his wife fished it out of the bin and said no no this is good you've got to carry on and finish this this is good you know you're onto something here he thought i better get my wife some it it was a Sunday night in Bangor, Maine in like the 1970s. And you've got to remember back then, the 1970s in Bangor, Maine was like the 1970s on a Sunday in Britain. You know, <laughs> nothing was open. But all that was open was a petrol station. And apparently, as a thank you to his wife, he bought her a hairdryer from the local oh, petrol station. Brilliant. And he'd just been, he'd just been awarded $400,000. For, Didn't he have uh, trouble flogging Carrie, though? I mean, I might be wrong, but I seem to yeah, I think remember a story that no one wanted it, and he had yeah, I don't uh, think he did. given up. But I've never yeah, read Carrie. That's saw... one book I haven't read. Uh, no. Well, there's plenty I haven't read, actually, but one of the sort of classics, I suppose. But I think that's true. I think he did. I think he really struggled at first, and then all of a sudden, bam, someone really saw something and they thought they were onto something. He, he was onto something and then put a lot of money behind it. And I don't think it changed ever since because it sold and therefore they put more money behind him and one thing or another. And now he's just he's just super rich. And he, I mean, it's ridiculous how yeah. much money he probably has. His next book was Solemn's Lot, wasn't it? And yeah. then possibly The Shining, which I have read. 
Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. That it's in that order. Is it? I've been doing a little bit of research since we thing, and and there's there's a. I think I'm gonna just gonna segue slightly early just to say, we're really good at mentioning other podcasts, and I hope that some of these people on these other podcasts might actually one of these days I've listened to our podcast and go how nice of them to always mention other podcasts. Just wanted to put that out yeah, there, you bastards. Uh, that's right. Yeah. But this podcast is called it, It's a King Thing. And what they did, what they've done, these lads, is, is reviewed every Stephen King book from start to, that's the, their plan, that they're like only halfway through, you know. And they're quite scathing in some things. They, they're big Stephen King fa- fans, but they're pretty scathing too, to be fair, on some of the, his characterizations, some of his plot twists and everything else. But they start from Carrie and then go Salem's Lot and then they which go. Which ones, do you, do you remember which ones they really slagged off? Uh they slag off some characterizations in uh, they well what, let's put it this way they slagged off Hal Rahan's characterization in The Shining because mm-hmm. they say he's a bit of a kind of stereotypical black guy seen through the sort of the lens of a, a a sort of very liberal white guy who doesn't really know anything about black people that's the way they see it the way he speaks Hal Rahan's dialogue in it you know. It was yeah. played by Scatman Crothers, wasn't he, in the film? Yeah, yeah, Hong Kong Fooey. Yeah, Hong Kong Fooey, and it's Scatman Crothers. No, I was wondering, did they slag off particular books? Because you look on Amazon, right, for reviews, and nearly every Stephen King book has loads of five-star reviews and loads of one-star reviews. Yeah. So it's, they really it's Marmite. do. Yeah, it's Marmite, isn't it? Absolutely, mate. He's Marmite. He's totally Marmite. And I think these lads have a bit of a mix of that because they love him. I think what their their general consensus is, is that he's a master sort of storyteller. He has these great stories and he, he's a great page turner and everything. But he has certain things that, especially in his big tomey kind of books like Salem's Lot, like The Shining, everything else that go on and on and on. There are things that you realise are kind of superfluous. And like the one thing they were talking about in The Shining was the, the topery lions. Oh, God, like. Dave, that really irritated me. That <laughs> And... I've read the book after I'd seen the film, obviously, and uh, I don't want to say I didn't like the book. I did like it, but the topiary animals coming to life, I just couldn't get my head around that. I'm so glad Kubrick didn't include that. Well, the maze is like the alternative to the topiary lions, isn't it? That's the idea yeah. of... Uh... I can't remember whether there's a maze in the... No, I don't think there is, because the way uh, Jack Torrance ends up, and uh, this is a spoiler if anybody hasn't read it, is something to do with the boiler blowing up, I think, in the book. Yeah, yeah, it's different things. And in the end, he sort of has this kind of moment of realisation and tries to save uh, Danny, doesn't he? So he's kind of like, they don't actually have, you know, it's not quite as bleak, I think, the Jack Torrance's character in the end as Kubrick makes him. But I think, I think, you know, it's unfair on King in a way. I and mean, he probably has learned his lesson now that if you're going to sell your book to somebody and you're going to have a massive book, you know, you sell it to a filmmaker who is known for telling kind of very um, kind of almost existential films, you know, like where there's a lot of all, also there's a lot of like space in those films. All his films have that, you know. Yeah. You can't pack in all that plot and all that detail you have to let the audience read between the lines 
And there's a lot of things that are in the book that are just suggested in the film, which I think is great. Mm-hmm. You know, the suggestion that he had previously hurt Danny, for example. Yes. That's brilliant in the film, the way that's portrayed, because it isn't, it's not wrung to death, you know, in the storyline. And the suggestion that he hit the bottle is in there as well. Yeah. You know, the suggestion that it's a kind of new beginning for them and it's a chance for Jack to do what he wants and write the book and everything else. So I think the film's a masterpiece, I have to say. I really, you know. Yeah, he's, he's softened his view on it, King, actually. I mean, he at, has. No, at he first has. he was really scathing about it, wasn't it? Because he did deviate yeah. so much from the book. And he was talking to Drew Barrymore on this show and he said he doesn't like it. And she said, why, why? And he said, well, the book's warm, the film's cold. Um, which I get what he means, but what that's Kubrick what, did was incredible, I think. Absolutely incredible. And that's what we love about it. The yeah. fact that we love the it fact that, so it's, cold. that it's cold mm. and it's spacious. The horror should be cold. Yeah, absolutely. Warm horror. Well, I think I'm right in thinking that in the original Salem's Lot, for example, Mr. Barlow talks quite a lot in it. I think he talks and I think he has some big speeches. And Now, if, if I'm wrong or I've misheard this, because I've not read Salem's Lot, I have to say I haven't. I may have read a few mm. pages of it and blah 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 but the fact that mr barlow is like this prime prime evil medieval figure that just emerges and just destroys and takes what he wants is, is this amazing vampire character it just makes it so much so strong in the in the tv version you know mm. and the same with the shining like everything stripped back everything that's in the shining that's stripped back works so well and perhaps that's it really with king he writes very big big dense novels a lot of the time with lots of detail and lots of ideas and and lots of dialogue and lots of little story angles but in a film quite often you're best stripping away a lot of them and get to the core of it get into the Mm. core and that's what Kubrick does so well doesn't he you know and that's what all the best king adaptations have probably done haven't they I mean, I did remember King praising some of the bits that Kubrick did. He particularly likes the all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy because that wasn't in the book. No, exactly. And yeah. I think the ending where Jack Torrance is in that picture from the 20s, that isn't in the book either. No, brilliant. So he he, he added some brilliant original stuff. To brilliant it. stuff. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. It's funny because he did work on with Kubrick on it for a bit, didn't he? And they were talking yes. about casting it. And uh, I think Jack Nicholson was always Kubrick's first choice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Where other people considered, like, even Harrison Ford. And yes. Stephen King favoured Martin Sheen or John Voight, you know, sort of everyman yeah. actor. And I can see that, in yeah. a way. Because and when I was they... reading the book, I was imagining Martin Sheen. Because the biggest criticism King has of Jack Nicholson playing him, you can tell straight away he's mental, he's weird, he's creepy. The idea in the book is that it's this ordinary man that's sent mad by this hotel. Yes, absolutely, and I understand that. But in the book itself, though, there is that big suggestion that this is a man who, under the influence of alcohol, can have these, you know, this mad sort of uh, rage in his system. Yeah. You know, this mad rage um, because he beats up a kid, doesn't he? He beats the living oh, daylights yeah. out of a student. 
mm. for example. So we know things about Torrance's behaviour, you know, maybe that obviously that over time in the book. And the thing with Jack Nicholson, he, although he looks, it has that Nicholson look that he could do anything at any time. He doesn't develop into real madness until quite later into the film, I think, you know. It's, no. it's, I can see King's point, and I can see the point of view that he's also suggested, which was it was only like four years or five years prior to The Shining that Nicholson had had this mass, his biggest hit in One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest, where he's associated with people with mental illness and you yeah. know, go crazy, basically. Um, yeah. But that argument isn't, in a way, because in reality... Jack Nicholson's character in One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is one of the sanest ones in there. He's he is. Just a, that's that's he's a, sort of idea, isn't it? Yeah, he's that's a chance a prisoner, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get King what King said about the everyman, though, thing, because Nicholson is quite an extraordinary kind of actor, I think. I mean, he's so brilliant. I love him. I mean, he's so brilliant and compelling, and he's got that just amazingly charismatic face and way about him. Yeah. Whereas a John Voight... As a, he's a more of an everyman, you know. Yeah. Ironically, in real life, John Voight isn't an everyone. He's a fucking nut job. He's like Donald Trump. He's a <laughs> mad right winger, isn't he? Honestly, John Voight's politics is so right wing you wouldn't believe it. He's hilarious. <laughs> you know, you'd think he'd be like a a, a real liberal, wouldn't you? But yeah. Because of his films and what have you. But um, yeah, no, and, and Martin Sheen. It's interesting though casting it because they, you could see all the people doing it and doing obviously doing it in a different way. But, oh, I think um, Nicholson's perfect. I I wouldn't change anything oh, about so. The Shining. I mean, okay, it isn't the book, but I don't care. You know, what, why not have two different versions? Both I, satisfying in their own way. Oh, absolutely. And and this is the thing, though. You know, when King and it's a great point you make actually about two different versions. By all means, do a telly series, have Martin Sheen play it, and make it good and make it interesting, blah blah blah. But when they did actually make, and it was put Stephen King put his name to it. And was he the executive producer or something of it? And well, it was well, called Stephen King's The Shining, I think. Yeah, and You're I talking think about he wrote this TV series that I know out exactly. in the nineties, I think it was. Out in the nineties, and he wrote the screenplay and everything. And I have only seen, and I have seen about ten to fifteen minutes of it. Oh, it's so cringe, I've and not it's seen so it. made for TV. And it, oh god, and it, if you read the reviews about it, oh my god, so. Uh, Stephen King must have realised I've dropped the ball here, you know, drop the ball here. Yeah. It, it was really... I think Stephen Webber was uh, the Jack Torrance character. Yes. You might not know him, but he's not a very famous guy. He was in, uh, I remember seeing him in Single White Female. I think he got a shoe in his eye. Yeah. <laughs> by Jennifer Jason Leigh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but I was thinking about, uh, or I was reading something about, the co-writer of Kubrick's Shining, it was this woman, I can't remember her name now, she wrote the scripts with Kubrick, mm. and she was so scathing about Stephen King's book. Yeah, she was. But what was interesting, I don't think Kubrick was. Because no, he loved it. He loved it. He loved it. He said it's one of the scariest things he's ever, re- he's ever read. Mm. And that was great, and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to make the scariest film ever. Apparently, what he wanted to do was be... William Friedkin to the to the claim of the scariest film of all time. Yeah. Or uh, Roman Polanski with Roman's Baby and all that. He wanted to do 
the greatest horror film. That's what he was uh, really out to do, apparently. Well, he was looking for like a more commercial hit, wasn't he? Because Barry yeah. Lyndon, which was his previous film, didn't yeah. do well. And uh, apparently he got his assistant like to buy a load of horror novels. Yeah. He sat in his office reading them and his, his secretary said that, you know, every two minutes you'd hear one of them land on the floor that he'd chucked aside <laughs> uh, until he picked up The Shining and she'd not heard anything for an hour. Yeah. You know? And she, she popped into the office and he's, and he's still reading it because he said it was engrossing. Yeah, brilliant. Got this, the kids got the shining. Diane Johnson, the name was, wasn't it? Diane Johnson co-wrote the screenplay with Stanley Kubrick. And it's interesting because he, he also used a, um, a fabulous uh, female composer, didn't he? Oh, I, love the, I love the score. I used to play score it. The score is amazing. Well, the music, uh, and he's, he's actually got, I think it's Wendy, what's her name? He did the, sorry again, just going to do this. Uh, shining score because that opening music is incredible isn't it dun, 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 dun. <laughs> something like that dun, 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 dun. That's it. Uh, wendy carlos i think her name was i don't know why i'm looking this up because i knew it was wendy carlos yeah yeah the main, the main theme was done by a woman called wendy carlos and I think I'm right in saying that she was um, transgender, actually, a transgender right. man turned woman. But yeah, and then these other uh, other people, the Rocky Mountains was Rachel uh, Elkind as well, and Randy Carlos. It's quite interesting the female contribution to uh, to The Shining. You know, the sensibilities. Yeah, which brings it's, us on to uh, the casting of Shelley Duval, which a lot of people really don't like. But I think she's perfect. I think she's great. Oh, fantastic. She's amazing. In fact, she so deserves, uh, uh, I think, uh, an Oscar nod, you know, for her performance. I thought yeah. she was brilliant in it. Uh, yeah, because a lot of people fear. find her extremely annoying, but that's part of the character, I suppose, that she, she yeah. does get on Jack's tits, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. And she she was worse. Oh, it's a frenzy. She was bullied basically by Cuban, wasn't she? Mm. She was treated like shit. To be fair, I don't think it'd be allowed today to treat no. an actress in that way. That no. to get that performance out of her at the end, where she's literally petrified. She's neurotic. She's completely neurotic in the end, you know, because she's been driven mad. That scene where she's backing away from Jack and she's got the baseball bat. Oh, amazing. He's threatening her. He apparently shot that 127 times. <laughs> I think the one they used was towards the end where she's absolutely <laughs> exhausted and you can just see it. Well, that's one of the, my favourite scenes, that. The, the dialogue is brilliant, isn't it? But he starts getting slightly irritated by the bat, doesn't he? Yeah. Stop swinging the bat, Wendy. Stop swinging the bat. Yeah. Well, she actually does clip Nicholson's hands, doesn't she? Yes. And that's for real. Yeah. She did get him like that. And he goes, I'm not going to hurt you, Wendy. I'm just going to bash your goddamn brains in. And But he wouldn't do the, he obviously wouldn't do the stunt. And apparently the guy who did the stunt, I think I'm right in saying, was the, he was the head of the union of stuntmen in the end who came and did it. Did that amazing stunt falling backwards down the mm. <laughs> I think, like you say, Lee, I think the Shining film is an absolute masterpiece. And having seen it again recently, 
I just love it. You know, I absolutely love it. I mean, you know, my lad loves it and his mates. We were watching it, uh, watching it with these boys, 14, 15, 13. They're all mesmerised by it. And it's not a film that's of any pace at all. No. It's slow, but it's so captivating. The, the sound in it is captivating. You know, the yeah. sound engineering is amazing. The music's amazing. The acting's amazing. Got slated at the time, didn't it? I bet King felt sort of vindicated at the time that he's, oh, I didn't do it. He didn't do it my way. And that's probably now why he's much, uh, has more respect for it because he's, he's realised how it's grown in stature over the years. And he's probably realised himself as an older man that when it comes yeah. to adapting something from book to film, if you've got a big book, you've got to get rid of some of the detail of a big book to make it into a film. It's different for a miniseries, but a film is only going to last an hour and 40, or in the Shining's case, two hours long. Or even if it's a long film, like three hours or something, like The Godfather, you've still got to be very, you've got to be kind of ruthless at editing certain things out, haven't you? Yeah, you do get a lot of authors that go on to write the screenplay. Yeah. It gets rejected. Always. Because they can't really write in the style that they need to write in. Because they're so Those attached to every aspect of their own yeah. story, aren't they? They need to, you need somebody who's separate from it. Yeah, they're always adding stuff in, uh, and there's it's too much expedition in it always as well. So what you need to do is because filmmaking is a visual thing, you have to. All the best films have these pregnant pauses where the audiences are treated with respect and intelligence, so you can read into what's happening or what's happened mm-hmm. or what's happening. And next, you don't need this all this expedition, exposition, sorry, exposition to explain everything. We will figure it out in our own way in time because we'll have the patience to sit through the film and then go, ah, yes. Or even go, mm, what did that mean? But that sometimes that's brilliant, isn't it? When yeah. you finish a film and go, mm, what did that mean? That's great. You don't want everything like put in the box with a nice big bow on the end and it's everything's, you know, explained to you. Give us a bit of bloody credit to figure it out for ourselves. You know, that's what films are good at. But that's why probably, aside from The Shining, one of the best things that's worked as a film by King, without doubt, is Shawshank Redemption. And Shawshank Redemption was a short story or a novella, wasn't it? And isn't that interesting? So because... His other adaptations, like Salem's Lot, which was hugely successful, but that's like a three-part or two-part TV film. So it had time to tell a lot of the story. Salem's Lot is another bloody tome, in it, that if you dropped it on your foot, you'd bloody hurt yourself. Talking about the Kubrick leaving things to people's imagination, there's a lot of uh, supposed hidden meanings in The Shining, isn't there, which have formed a part of a bit of a conspiracy theory uh, oh, yeah. there's even a documentary made about it called room 237 i mean most of it is probably bullshit but i do i do love some of the connections that have been made like particularly danny wearing the apollo 11 jumper which is yes. supposed to indicate that kubrick was behind faking the moon landing footage uh, yeah just coming off the back of uh, 2001 there's also he's where Danny's wearing a summer of '42 t-shirt, I think, yeah. and that is apparently a reference to the Holocaust and the Final Solution that was rolled yeah. out in '42. One of the things from Room Two Three Seven, which was quite 
important, I think, was was that idea of genocide. So they were talking about summer of 42 T-shirt thing, which was suggesting the final solution by the Germans. It's also a big nod towards the treatment of Americans with the indigenous people of America. Yeah, the Native American. The genocide of the Native American people by by the Western powers that came to America. So I think I think there is a lot of hidden symbolism and suggestion in the film, you know, but my goodness me, people have read an awful lot into it. (laughs) I know, but it's part of the fun, isn't it? I think you don't take it too seriously. It's amazing. And there's certain scenes in the film. I know we're going on a tangent here talking a lot about the, the Shining film, but the Grady Torrance scene in the bathroom is just it's an amazing scene. That is yeah. amazing. And <laughs> just the acting, the the look of it. Oh my god, it is phenomenal, you know. And obviously there's a lot of kind of very difficult language used in that scene and mm-hmm. uh it's kind of horrific as well the suggestion in it but what um, did you say his character was called Dave? grady wasn't it the way delbert said, grady delbert grady isn't it well his name changes in the film it starts off with the hotel manager telling jack at the start doesn't it that the previous caretaker was called charles grady right but later on, his name changes to Delbert Grady, I think. Oh, my God. Let me just try and find, verify that. Isn't there an element in the book as well where there's a gangster who gets involved in uh, and these kind of roaring 20s people who are de- absolutely decadent get involved in the, hosting a party at the um, the Overlook? But he was based, uh, he'd had a bad dream, hadn't he, staying in this place called the Stanley Hotel. And he said it was the perfect place for the um, right for the story. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the hotel itself were, was built, wasn't it, on set? It's one of the biggest sets of the time, I think. Yeah, yeah. But they did use some real hotel yeah. uh, for some of the shots. And I think that that's another star of the film for me is the hotel. The yeah. hotel looks brilliant. You know, it's massive, it's imposing. There's just some malevolence about it. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. But it wasn't the Overlook, as which isn't called the Overlook in real life. That building was not what King had in mind in the book. He right. had in mind this place called the, Sta- the Stanley in Colorado, where he stayed. Yeah, there we are. The Stanley Hotel inspired the Overlook Hotel. So it was called the Overlook in the book. The Stanley Hotel inspired the Overlook Hotel in Stephen King's 1977 bestselling novel, The Shining, and its 1980 film adaptation, uh, uh, and was a filming location for the related 1997 TV miniseries. So they actually used the Stanley Hotel in the miniseries because it was Stephen King's original. That's what he wanted. So ah. Stephen had to get what he wanted in the end. He did indeed, yeah. Yeah. But the Overlook is um, a real hotel that exists because I looked at it and I looked at the prices of bedrooms and stuff in it a while ago. Uh, but it's called something else. Uh, th- that front of it. But like you said, all the interior, because all the interiors, of course, in the actual Shining film were shot in Britain, mm. in Pinewood Studios, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
And as it always seems to be the case, the set caught on fire. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how these things happen. Is it just people lobbing a cigarette? <laughs> yeah, I think so. You always hear about movie sets catching fire. And they always become like the... Um... They always become part of the myth, aren't they, of the, the evil goings on in this film. It was always like the omen had so many people die. The exorcist had so many people die. Yeah, like, right. There's like loads of people involved in the film. And it usually finds out that it's the relative of, like, Max von Sydow's brother had died, you know. There's a creepy one in the omen, though, isn't it? Because somebody who was involved in the omen was involved in a car accident where I think his was it his girlfriend that got beheaded and really it was literally um on a road that was called something like road 666 and it was near to a town or near to the next village which was called Omen apparently no way. apparently so honestly I've heard there. this I've read I've actually heard Richard Donner himself talk about that story you know so horse's wow. mouth and all that but it's a very unusual coincidence mm. it's just um mechanical. just briefly um before we move away from the shining have you seen the sequel doctor sleep yes i have what did you think because have i seen haven't it? seen it okay so i'll be very quick here's my synopsis of this i didn't think it was terrible i thought there's some very good moments in it i think it's a huge elaboration from what the shining was especially going off the film i can only go off the film i never read the book because i know obviously there's lots more story angles and arcs and again supposition what mike flanagan has tried to do i think is please both parties as he's try to please stephen king and kingian readers and people who love the Shining film. So, yeah, it's got this good Shining ending. Um, the rest of the film is about people who possess the Shining. And yeah. it goes... And it's a, a, the thing with quite a lot of King stuff is quite a lot of his supernatural stuff. It gets quite elaborate, doesn't it? Mm. It's quite a, quite elaborate with its story ideas and one thing or another. And some of it I thought was great. And some of it was truly horrific. You know, there's a bit with a young boy that's I won't go into too much detail but just to say that you know some unpleasant things happen to a very young boy in it I found that really horrific and I I don't want to give spoilers to you Lee based on what you've said there I'll definitely give it a watch because I've heard mixed reviews I'd like to I'd like to see what you think about it I I was I think fundamentally I was a bit disappointed with it I thought Mm. some things in it were pretty good some quite interesting ideas yeah, the book's generally been well received, actually. Yeah, is it it's not first, one you've read. Of, I'm taking it. Is it the first uh, sequel he's ever done to one of his books? It probably is. Maybe, isn't it? P- possibly yeah. is. But going back to the books, have you have you read a Stephen King book, Dave? I know that might sound a daft question, but have you actually read? Uh, I've read some of the Green Mile. Yeah. I had the Green Mile in in like little kind of yeah, novella forms. I did it. I released a book a book a month, I think. Really, yeah. Versions. I was quite enjoying that, but I, I think I read about three of them, though, to be honest. And mm. there was a lot more than three, wasn't there? Of them, I think there was six or seven, I think. Yeah, and should have carried that on. And I've I've read 
quite a bit, if not all of it, but I can't quite remember. Is it The Cycle of the Wolf? Yeah. The Cycle of the Werewolf, rather? Is that like a comic um, book, that? Yeah, it's almost like a comic. Mm. I've been very off. Like, I started reading, which one was it? I started reading Under the Dome, right? Yeah. And I got about 30 or 40 pages in it. I thought, I'm not going to carry on reading this. It's massive. It's an enormous book. I thought I've got other things I want to be doing. Well, it's funny that because I've never attempted his his uh, longest books. I've not. I have att- Well, I have attempted the stand a few times, but I've not got past like forty pages. Uh, I've not attempted it, which is about a thousand pages. And I think I know the story too well anyway. Whereas the stand, I know there was a TV series back in the eighties which I remember seeing. I don't know if I remember it that well. So I think I will give the stand a go one time. A lot of his books are too long for me. His best books are the, are the shorter ones. I think, hands down, Misery is the best Stephen King book I've ever read. And it's possibly the best novel that I've read because I read that in a whole night. I read it through the night. I've read it a few times since then. And every time it's fantastic. It's so brilliantly paced. It's a great story. And yeah. fortunately, they made a brilliant film out of it, which isn't always the case with his books, is it? No. It hasn't been. Rob Reiner's done some brilliant work. Yeah, on he Stephen did Stand King's By stuff, Me. Yeah. It's Stand By Me as well. Yeah. And Darabon. There's two yeah. directors who have just taken Stephen King's work and gone, I know how to do it and what to do. And my God. I mean, I mean, I think the end of the mist blew Stephen King away. Never mind, you know. I love the mist. I oh, I've not mist seen that. Good. Have you not? Oh man, you're in. I think the mist is a brilliant film, and it's yeah. a very dark, and it's a brilliant and a very dark film, mate. Is it a film or a miniseries? Oh no, the film. Get the film from the early 2000s, late 90s, whatever it was. Early no, no, mid 2000s it was, wasn't it? Oh man, it's a great film. I love it. Frank Darabont's the and it's about an hour and forty long. Oh, did Darabont do that one as well? Yeah, Frank Darabont directed it. Yeah. Ah, there's two. There's a there's a there is a TV series as well. Uh, Hang on a minute. Didn't Darabont do Green Mile as well? Yeah. Fuck me, he did, didn't he? And I have to say, you know, a lot of Green Mile I liked as a film. Yeah. And I liked reading it. I should have carried on reading it. I keep intending to read different seasons because obviously different seasons has had a massive popular culture of its own. The fact that out of that one group of four short stories, three are made into three successful films. One film is regarded as the greatest of all time these days in many, mm-hmm. or certainly from a popularist point of view. The Shawshank Redemption is like, you know, probably, probably what if you ask 10, pe- 10 people randomly what their favourite film is, you'd find someone who would say The Shawshank Redemption, wouldn't you? Sure, you'd you know. find more than one, Dave. Yeah, probably would, mate, you know. And it's up there for me, too. I think it's a fabulous film, you know. And we're going to talk, we're going to do prison prison stories, aren't we? So maybe yeah. we don't want to go into too much detail on that. But it's a brilliant story, a brilliant yarn, great characters. And he does do that, doesn't he? I mean, King does do that. Um, that was a, a nice twist of Darabon's putting... Morgan Freeman in his red because of course red was not in any way shape or form going to be a black character because right. I think in the story the idea was it was a white prison for white prisoners that you know for like the white working class of the area because of the way it was originally based which is a very white conurbation of people you know 
that's the idea that I suppose that Red was Irish. So when Morgan Freeman makes that comment, it's be, I'm called Red because I'm Irish, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Nothing else is said about it. That's brilliant, no. I think. I'll have to read different seasons because that's another one I've not read. But yeah, it's got the body, which was stand by me, Rita Hayworth from the Shawshank Redemption, Apt Pupil, which yeah. was a good film with uh, Ian McKellen, I, I think. Agree. And McKellen's fantastic in that. It's a really yeah. good little piece, that. Yeah. You know, Brian so, Singer directed that, Dave. Brian Singer, uh, Usual yeah. Suspects. Usual Suspects, great so, filmmaker. The one so story they always forget from different seasons is The Breathing Method, which, uh, as far as I know, has yes. not been made into a film. And that comes under a great deal of criticism from these chaps on the podcast that I was talking about, that it's a king thing, because um, they feel that that really is the sort of odd one out of those stories. And uh, anyway, the reality is, irrespective of what any critic says about Stephen King, and this is said totally by these fellas and totally by these great filmmakers, He's a brilliant storyteller. He creates these fantastic ideas, these fantastic story arcs. And then yeah. filmmakers who have got intelligence and ability, and it's quite noticeable how many very good filmmakers have got hold of his work and run with it. And, you know, let's not forget Toby Hooper, who did I mean, Salem's Lot for TV. Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma did Carrie, Toby Hooper, Frank Darabont, obviously Stanley Kubrick. The brilliant Rob Reiner. These people, you know, are great filmmakers. And John who, Carpenter. Of course. Oh, my God. How come? They did Christine, of course. Christine, great John yeah. Carpenter. That was the first King book I read, and it is still one of my favourites. For my sins, not only have I not read the book, Christine, I've not seen the film. Not properly. If I did, I saw it a long time ago. And a lot of people rave about the film. You know, I know Car- Carpenter's got a big fan base, but a lot of people love that film. Which film? Yeah. Uh, Christine. You've never seen Christine? No. Dave, don't think so. it's fucking brilliant. Oh, well, it's one of his Dave. best adaptations. Gonna... Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, Dave, you've got to watch it. It's brilliant. For my absolute sins, I maybe I did, but years ago, and maybe it just didn't resonate at the time. Because I'm a massive John Carpenter fan as well. You know, I, yeah. I mean, I love The Thing and I love Halloween. But yeah, oh, yeah. okay. It's that, so good. Keith Gordon. Well, on your recommendation, pal. Keith is... Gordon, who plays Arnie, the sort of oh, classic nerd, gets bullied yeah, yeah. and then just transforms because of this car. Dave, you will love Christine. I know it. it, it oh, it's yeah. Definitely one of the best King adaptations, I'd say. You know, quite controversially, I might put it in front of The Shining only because The Shining is not that close to the book, if you like. Yeah. But in terms of faithful adaptations. Brilliant, mate. Well, I will do that. Just want to say this before it goes out of my head and I forget. But I was watching last night this fantastic interview that any of listener wants to check this out. You, you can do it on YouTube. And it's from the Dick Cavett show in the early 1980s. And he's talking about horror, horror fiction. And his guests are, and it's brilliantly, honestly, listen to this. His guests are Stephen King, Ira Levin, George E. Romero. I've seen it. And Peter Straub. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Oh, you've seen it. I have seen that clip, yeah. Oh, it's great. I've watched the whole... um, 
like 50 minute interview where they're talking about and actually that was not long after the shining came out and he was actually quite complimentary about the shining film so whether he was holding back personal feelings obviously blah 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 but they were all very much caught doesn't he from the film (laughs) yeah yeah exactly didn't want to say too much but um they were all very complimentary about um about ira 11 of course because of rosemary's baby which kind of it was a do you know what? It was a culture change of that book, I think, for a lot of people. But without Rosemary's Baby, I mean... Eddie he wrote out. Voice from the Brazil, didn't he? Ira Levin wrote Voice from Brazil, The Stepford Wives, Rosemary's Baby. That's a pretty decent wow. list. Of, you know, got that on your list. And yeah. he was the quietest out of all of them, really. He was just quite a jovial kind of fella. But the, I thought Georgie Romero was really... Um, well, he did, a, he did an adaptation... Uh, Romero, he did The Dark Half, which is yes, a did. book that came out, was it after, Was it 89? I think it was after the Tommy Knockers. And that yeah. is probably my second favourite book to Misery of Kings. The adaptation isn't great, honestly, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it's got Timothy Hutton in it. And yes, it's I've about the it. alter yeah. ego, this alter ego of... Yeah. Um, so many of his books, the main character is a writer, an author. Yes. And uh, the interesting thing about the dark half is it's this twin that was absorbed into the character of, uh, I can't remember yeah. his name. Timothy Thornton's character, yeah. Yeah, so they find, they operate on him because he starts having these headaches when he's a kid and they can't understand what it is and they find, they do a brain scan and they see things and they open up his his brain and absorbed into his brain like a couple of eyes, a nose and some teeth. Like really fucking creepy. Uh, uh, which oh, I think, I think it can happen. Oh. I think there is instances yes. where that's happened. Yeah, no, they right. can't. So, so what yeah, happens subsequently is this, he's trying to write these good novels, but they're not working. So he creates like, a pen name and he writes all this like schlock. Right, but it becomes really yeah. successful under the name of George Stark. But this George Stark, actually manifests himself into a real person or you know i'm not sure i can't remember now if it's if it's actually a real person or it's the same guy if you know what i mean but it's a yeah, brilliant yeah. book that and one that rarely gets mentioned well it's interesting in that in this interview romero because romero i thought was so eloquent he's such an intelligent guy you know it's easy to think oh he made those zombie films but they're very clever zombie films they talk about society and there's a lot of social sociology and politics in those zombie films you know dawn of the dead and day of the dead and what have you but he's so intelligent and it transpires as they're chatting that it's uh, king and romero are working together because they're making the film creep show which he was involved with wasn't he he was yeah that's pretty good creep so and then peter straub who's one of the other one he's written a book the talisman i think with peter straub later on yeah King has, and he said that Ghost Story, Peter Straub's book, Ghost Story, was the best horror story that he I ever loved that. read. I really did love Ghost Story. Yeah, yes. I mean, the film's I really good. It. It's one of, I love the film. I love the uh, film. What's his face? Fred Bing Astaire Crosby and, and Douglas Fairbanks. It's Fred, As- yeah, Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire. Not, not uh, Bing Crosby, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Fred Astaire, Douglas Fairbanks, yeah. It's Mervyn Douglas, I think, Fred Astaire and uh, um, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., isn't it? Yeah, and it's a great film, real great story. I love that. Love that yeah. film. So that was really a fantastic, pa- really chilling. 
really and what a panel of people who you know have really helped change the course of what horror the horror genre is mm. because the horror genre covers so much scope now and what's interesting, they were also talking about H.P. Lovecraft in that conversation and M.R. James, too, which was great. Straub, in particular, was talking about M.R. James. So yeah. it all kind of links together beautifully, doesn't it, with yeah, yeah. a lot of the things we're interested in. But, yeah, but but I just find that the great thing with King, though, is his longevity is incredible, really. He is a massive pop culture icon. Mm. You almost think of him it, almost in the same terms of, like, a Steven Spielberg something you know what yeah. it's so funny you said that because i was thinking of him like that yeah i was thinking of him before he's like the dark half of spielberg still going well into his 70s yeah and i'm sure i mean his books still get great reviews i mean i like i said i've not read any for a bit i think to me sometimes they suffer from being a bit samey i think i think his characters can be a bit saying they all you know he's the amount of times he the person's got like a drink problem it's yeah. it's gets a bit boring but character's an author you know quite yeah you know he's an author he's like him you know this is the thing well that's where i think misery sort of grew organically from that real fear that he had of his fans you know because some of his fans are a bit mad you know they'd write to him and uh he got to a point where he would never write back and he used to produce this standard like postcard. He used to print them off and it would say something like, thanks for writing to me. But if I had to reply to every letter I got, I would know I have no time to write books. So he's, because I think some of the fans were just a bit mad and a bit obsessive. So he didn't really want to enter in a dialogue with him and you can't blame him. But Annie Wilkes is like that archetypal fan who just yeah. goes a bit far. But that was a real fear of his, you know. Imagine that getting kidnapped by your number one fan. She forces oh, you yeah. to buy a book. Well, what's interesting about about misery, from what again I've discovered in my little bit of research about King, is he's been scathing about fat people for a start in in uh, in some of the things he's written. And I, I think he says pretty yeah. When he wrote the book Dance Macabre, which is a non-fiction book about horror. Yes, I think I'm right in saying that. In it is, yeah. yeah. He um he makes some comment about really fat people being kind of alien to the rest of the human, being like alien creatures, you know. And he's got this kind of fascination with it. So he makes her a particularly kind of frumpy. On I think he was in in that in reference to like really really obese people. To be fair, he wasn't mm. talking about your general sort of fattish person i think he got know. a bit fat well he certainly did some point you know. in his career when he was bloody boozing and taking coke and he got addicted to like loads of things including listerine you know the mouthwash <laughs> he got addicted to well he was drinking listerine well probably yeah to disguise the smell of booze i would imagine well, that's, that's full of booze in itself, and it? it's full of alcohol. Full oh, of is alcohol. it? Right, fair enough. Yeah, right. it's full of alcohol, Listerine. Oh. Probably got him really smashed. You know, here's a guy, let's be honest, Steve is no oil painting, is he? You know, no. <laughs> let's be honest. And he's going on about, you know, uh, fat, ugly fans and all this, you know, talk, calling fat people like strange and alien. I mean, he the first time I ever saw a picture of Stephen King, I thought, fuck me. It's scarier than the book. Scary than the fucking book. That cover. 
<laughs> I thought, God, he he looks mad. He's mad. He's as mad as a hatter. What the hell's going on there? And uh, anyway, they are. But um, I got a great story though related to that idea of the fans, right? But I think this is a perfect link. He tells a story. Stephen King tells a story of of going out and dining at a cafe with the boss, Bruce Springsteen, right? Mm. So it, Bruce Springsteen said, I'd love to meet you. Would you come and have some lunch with me or whatever, some dinner? And uh, they're sitting down talking, one thing or another. This is at the height of King's fame in the first few years where Salem's Lot and The Shining and what have you have gone through the roof. Shining's come out as a film. He, he can do no wrong. And uh, this girl walks in. Bruce Springsteen sighs because she starts coming straight over to their table and Springsteen is pulling his pen out of his pocket and the girl goes, you're Stephen King, can I have your autograph? <laughs> Bruce Springsteen just tentatively puts the pen back in his pocket and he's embarrassed, you know what I mean? Just yeah. assuming. Don't assume. Exactly, yeah. Uh, very interesting. But the guys had such phenomenal success and the truth is, like, Carrie is... Carrie's a brilliant idea and it, it's a great film. I, I really enjoyed Carrie. I love a bit of Brian De Palma anyway. Great. Mm. Those first three books turn into the three films that meant so much as I was growing up, really. Like The Shining, Carrie and Salem's Lot. I mean, Salem's Lot. Christ, how bloody scary was that when mm. that came on the telly? You know, the adaptation. Yeah. It's brilliant. And we've talked about that before, you know, Mr. Barlow, what a fabulous, because... <laughs> What's that bit you always do? Your faith oh, against yeah. his faith. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Your preacher, shaman, your faith against his faith, now. And the way he just clangs the heads of the couple together, bang. God, Mr. He's Barlow. Mr. Barlow is Not, one of the most... Last time we were talking about Gary Barlow, and now we're talking about Mr. Barlow. Well, I don't know who's more frightening. And we've done Ken as well, you know. We, yeah. we love a bit of Barlow. It's, it, it strikes me, Lee, there's some seriously scary Barlows in this world. <laughs> and they probably are all related to Mr. Barlow. Um, hello, yes, he's coming, he's coming. He'll be here soon. He'll be here. Trust me, he'll be here for you soon, Mr. Barlow. Oh, I love James Miss. Oh, I love him. But another film, Dave, that come out soon after that, which again is a great book, one I have actually read, is The Dead Zone. Oh my God, I'm just going to say that. that I Cronenberg, love another great director. Fucking ace, Cronenberg. Again, how, oh my God, how have we not mentioned Cronenberg? Mm. The man, I love Cronenberg. And Dead Zone's a, such a great film. Yeah. And King, my God. What King came up with there was a premonition to the future. It really was, <laughs> it was like a dead zone How moment. ironic, because that's it's what incredible. it's about. I mean, yeah. he, he basically, oh, God, it's what so freaky. character called it? it was Greg, uh, the fucking Martin Sheen mad bastard. Yeah, Greg Stilson. Funnily enough, he, that's, that's a weird bit of casting, that, isn't it? That he casted. Yeah. He was thinking every man, Martin Sheen, for the ordinary guy in The Shining, but he cast him as this mad bastard, Greg Stilson. But he's brilliant in it, Sheen. He's really great. Martin be. Sheen's a great actor. And Martin yeah. Sheen can do out. Yeah. Yeah. He can do no wrong in my eyes. He's, and, and that is a brilliant, brilliant film, that. Great. Again, great idea. Beautifully delivered. 
by a great filmmaker. That seems yeah. to be such a link with King's work, you know. To segue a little bit onto something that might seem a little bit frivolous, because I was thinking, where does where does King stand in the sort of pantheon of like best-selling authors of all time? Because I was thinking, is he the, is he actually the biggest-selling author of all time? And he's actually nowhere near, isn't Christie's, he? You know, this is when you look. Agatha Christie's Christie unbelievable. Shakespeare and Christie, they reckon, are like two billion. They reckon two yeah. billion. Kings, 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 Kings in the top ten, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, he's up there. But you know who's you know who's higher than him, which I found startling. Dean Koontz. Koontz no way. Is higher. Dean I'm telling Koontz you, have a look, look it up. Dean Koontz is higher on the sales list than I King. can't believe. And that. I could That's a dodgy chart. He reckon he's at about four hundred million. Uh, books sold. He's written a lot more books, mind. Well, he's a poor man, um, King, isn't he? Oh, he's, have you? I, do you know? Now I was going to say this to you, right, mate? I've been a, pretty much behind the door on reading King book. I, King's books, I admit, very poor. But I have actually read two thirds of a <laughs> Dean Koontz book called Phantoms, right? And I thought it was like written by a child. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading it. The sentences, the dialogue and stuff. It's unbelievable. I mean, there's some good ideas in it. Giant I tried one of his and put it down pretty quickly. The way the sentences are constructed. So I looked him up the other day. I thought, what is he like? Is he still alive? What's Dean Koontz like? And it does sound quite intelligent in a way, but he's an odd little fella. Oh, my God. Look at him. Have a look at Dean Koontz. He's yeah, 63 he's got, years he looks, old. Has he got a bit of a... He's got a massive wig on there. It's got to be. It's like a huge, like, mop top. His hair's like Paul McCartney in 1963. And he's 63 or four years old himself. Oh, my his God. Dad was, yeah. That is his a, dad's diagnosed soci- sociopath, apparently. That is a solid hair system. But <laughs> even when he talks, he talks a bit like a kind of slightly, hi there. <laughs> That's got to be a wig, that. I mean, have you seen him? There's one picture of him here where he's balding. That's in black and white. So that was obviously taken in the seventies, and now he's got this massive sort of Elton John type yeah. hair going on. It's a ridiculous wig, and he's slightly camp, like he's a bit gay. He's been married for years to the same person. He's a little bit gay, and he talks a little bit like Timothy Treadwell, you know, from like mm. Grizzly Man. Hi there, Mister Chocolate. You know, <laughs> he's written all kinds of different books. He's the madam on Golden Retriever Dogs, which is not that's brilliant. I'm I'm love absolutely obsessed in a way with dogs, and Golden Retrievers are one of my favourite. But he's written it to his dog that died, and uh, it's like a love story. This book <laughs> to his Golden Retriever dog, you know. So he's kind of odd. He's an odd fella, really. Whereas when you listen to King interviewed, he's a really smart cookie. Lots of brilliant anecdotes and stuff. Mm. Yeah, another great thing about King is. He's such a big rock and roll fan, isn't he? And that's yeah. what I used to like about his books. He would always put lyrics yeah. in the... Yeah, from the Ramones and what chapter. I think he did that in Christine. And it would always, like, yeah. make you want to look up the song or listen to the song, because he has got great musical taste. Yeah. He was really into rock music in the 70s yeah, yeah. and a bit of metal as well. So Yeah, he's, but, he's fantastic. But I really, I did really think that he was probably... Because uh, my initial thought was, well, he sold more work than J.K. Rowling, hasn't he? You know, she's done, but he hasn't, you know, he hasn't, and that's 
bizarre in itself, really. How, oh, how I, I am surprised at that because he has written like over 60 novels, standalone novels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know, mate. I totally agree with you. I, yeah, right. he's down. I'm just going to give you a bit of this list, okay, because it's bonkers. Right. So, obviously, in a way, you can understand the Shakespeare thing and the Christie thing, can't you, really? I suppose to some degree. Because they're both down as two billion each. Two billion. Crazy, right? Then they've got, listen to this, Barbara Cartland and Daniel Danielle Steele, 500 million. Then on this, I don't know why it, because this is even more, Harold Robbins apparently has sold 750 million copies of his books, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, Enid Blyton's. Not Harold Robbins. Harold Robbins, you know. No, Harold Robbins. Didn't he do... Um, I was going to say he did Rich Man, Poor Man, but I don't think he did that. It was somebody else. Did that I, was, one. I was doing Basil Fawlty then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, mate. You were... I get it now. I was a bit slow on the upset there. <clears throat> Sidney Sheldon, all these sort of big names. J.K. Rowling, as we said there. 500 million. Blah, blah, blah. But anyway, but this is where it gets bonkers. Dean Koontz, 320 million. Or... Between 325 million or 400 million, right? This is the, yeah, the minimum estimated sales to the maximum estimated sales, okay? That is bonkers, isn't it? I can't believe that. Yeah, that is insane. I mean, there's so many, I mean, all that, there's a lot of uh, those type of books, you know, the same sort of thing that, you know, the Harold Robbins and the Daniel Steele, always made into mini series in the 80s weren't they yeah yeah yeah. but coons has only had a handful of things made into films i know i was thinking that i'm amazed at that and king's had absolutely king we estimate 300 million to 350 million right and then it but it gives his list of all this different stuff you know like his list is by far the biggest because he says horror science fiction fantasy it the shining the stand salem's lot uh, the green mile just goes on and on. 77 books. So his books, though, he has done, they reckon, 77 books to Dean Koontz's 91. So he has done less. But he's surely made a vast amount more money because all these adaptations that he's had, he must be he must be one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest author of all time, because surely he's had these incredibly successful adaptations made of all his work. It's rare that, yeah. a, that a film isn't made of his book, isn't it? Very rare. This list is mad. The shit people buy. Jeffrey Archer, 250 million to 330 million of his books. Makes one be sick. Absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. Uh, let's talk yeah. about it then. I mean, again, I've not read the book. It seemed a bit too daunting. Oh, let's uh, let's talk about it. I thought I was about to say, whatever you want to talk about, Lee. What, what, what is it you want to talk about? <laughs> Sorry. Who's on first? No, who's on second? Sorry. But yeah, another great adaptation. And I'm talking about the mini series that was out in the 90s with John Boy and Tim Curry. Um, Tim Curry's brilliant. I mean, I didn't mind. I've not seen a second part of the recent film because I've heard such bad reviews about it. Mm. Uh, But the first part was all right. I thought it was a decent, decent stab at it. Yeah, I've, I've seen not all of it. I've seen bits of it. But uh, I, I I thought the the TV series was brilliant. I mean, I particularly, 
I didn't I didn't like the ending. I thought the ending was fucking dreadful. No, definitely. Oh, uh, it kind of half ruined it. But again, this is the pop culture expansion of King. Is that things like it and Stand by Me have had this massive cultural impact, and they've they've resonated out to things like Stranger Things. You look at Stranger Things and you think it Stand by Me. You, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's very. And the, they've had a few King references in it. I think oh, in yeah. the last episode, one of the characters was reading The Talisman, which we mentioned before, which is the collaboration with Peter Straub. Yes. But yeah, massive influence, I would imagine, as has so much other stuff that they've uh, paid homage to or ripped yeah. off. And, it, and he's probably, again, King is probably culpable for this sort of obsession, especially around Halloween, for people to dress up and be scary clowns, yeah. you know, or for actually the change of popular culture from the idea of a clown being funny to a clown being something horrific. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. most people now think of a clown as something scary, not as what? something funny. Yeah. I mean, you rarely get a kid nowadays that says they like clowns. <laughs> it's, it's like a real phobia. You'd be a bit of a weird family, wouldn't you, if you think... You'd sort of say, oh, well, let's have a house party for little Graham. And say, let's hire a clown. Yeah. We used to have a big uh, painting on the wall of a clown in our bedroom, you know. We never really thought it was <laughs> creepy. Yeah, he'd yeah, got well, given to have... us and my mum didn't know where to put it. So we just had it in our room on the chimney breast. <laughs> it wasn't a particularly <laughs> medicine looking clown. I mean, it probably would I look like these... that now. My old fellow, uh, my daddy, he had these terrible like statues in like, uh, oh, I don't know, like Ladro type things, <laughs> you know, Dead Gordy, Capa de Monte even, I think, you know, <laughs> all that kind of crap. Those horrible, churned out fucking ornaments from the 1970s you know, on the <laughs> mantelpiece. Yeah. Horrible, like, hello, I'm a fucking clown, look at me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of bullshit. Oh, God. Amazing. Tat. Yeah. Amazing indeed, but. Yeah, Tim, I used to Tim go to the Curry. circus I mean, a lot as a Tim kid. Curry. Every year, I used my dad's work used to yeah. take us to the circus, and yeah, the clowns. I think he did. Great. Yeah, I, I kind of loved them. And we, we took George to a, a traditional circus when he was a kid. Though mm. he was horrified by it, he cried his eyes. I hated it. <laughs> I think it was just the overall noise. Yeah. It was. We actually. It was actually inside Blackpool Tower. Weird. Oh right. Yeah. Oh, right. Inside the building, you know, very echoey and it's quite claustrophobic and strange. Anyway, probably still happens now there. But there you go. But yes. Going back to King Day, I'm going to tell you something that is going to make you really, really happy. Okay. I found found this list, right, of his favourite film. Yeah, go on. Do you know what his number one favourite film is? His number one favourite film? Obviously, it's a film you love. Surely it's not. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there because I don't know this at all. But could it possibly be something like Night of the Demon or something like that? Well, that's an excellent guess because that's in his top twenty-two. Night of the Demons. Oh, I'm I'm delighted. It's not his favourite though. Okay, because I've heard him talk about his favourite in another in another interview. But I'll give you some highlights, right? So he's got the Changeling in there. He's got. Uh, I mean, strangely, he's got Deep Blue Sea by Rennie Harlan. <laughs> he's got Final Destination, which you wouldn't perhaps okay. expect. He's got Event Horizon, The Hitcher, 
The Mist. Right. Yeah. Uh, oh, they are The Mist. The Witch. Adaptation of his own work. Yeah, The Witch. The Witch. But Brilliant. his favourite film, Witch. Dave, is Sorcerer. Is S- Sorcerer? Yeah. Brilliant. Is yeah. it really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because I was going to say maybe The Exorcist, but that's pushing it. And I was actually, I was actually going to say, talking of John Carpenter, it might have been The Thing, because it has yeah. that sci-fi and horror combined so brilliantly. Yeah. I mean, I love The Thing. I think it'd be great to do a podcast on John Carpenter and just concentrate on The Thing, really. <laughs> well, I know. So, oh, it's great, isn't it? Such a great film. But you know what? Talking about The Exorcist is he was really scathing of Blatty's novel, you know. I didn't uh, know this. Yeah. Right, okay. Far yeah, away. He did he? He thought it was. It was thought it was a good example of like a bad horror book. He said it was like no humour in it, which is a strange thing to say for me. He said it was plodding. It was. He just didn't like it, but I think he loves the film. Uh, he might have revised yeah. revised his review review on that, but uh, I've read it. I thought it was great. I think what's interesting about Blatty, and I can sort of kind of seeing a way where king's coming from because king wants to interject because he's a kind of he's a very funny guy he's a very funny kind of sociable guy witty smart guy great but what is probably true about william peter blatty what is certainly true about william peter blatty is when you hear him interviewed he's a very earnest guy very he's very serious guy totally he, serious Oh, he so doesn't so have much of a sense. Well, he, I say he doesn't have a sense of humour. He course. wrote comedy. He started off writing comedy, didn't he? But he, he did. does appear clinically depressed most yes. of the time, doesn't he? Yes, and he really believes in the stuff he writes. He really believes he's yeah. proper, proper, like, I'm a sinner Roman Catholic, isn't he? You know, he's a proper Roman Catholic, mm-hmm. you know. And that was a beautiful combination of the the crazy Jew who didn't give a shit about upsetting anyone or anything, making this film that was written by this absolute believer, believer in good and evil and mm-hmm. believer in the church. So powerful. It worked brilliantly, didn't it, as a combination? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, and I've not read... Uh, I have read, actually, no, I have read about a third of The Exorcist, the novel, and I have enjoyed it. Um but well, it, you it, listened it, to Christopher Lee, didn't you, doing it? And, I, and I've done all that. I've listened to the whole of the audio books. I've actually read it off the page, a third of it, and listened to all of Sir Christopher Lee giving it all. The <laughs> 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 Reagan pounded at her vagina with the crucifix and all this kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> Your mother's a cunt. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and all this was going on. And it's heavy, but it's brilliant, isn't it? It I is mean, heavy. It is. I love it. Yeah. Crazy, crazy shit. Yeah. But, um, Whereas I think I think kings are a bit more of a page turner, a bit more yeah. sort of a romp yeah. and a ride, aren't they? But I think um, what he's good at, King, is he has a real empathy for people, doesn't it, and human humanity in general. You know, well, there's some really touching moments in his books between characters, and if you look at the adaptations, like Stand by Me is a really touching film about being a 12 or 13 year old kid you know he gets that he's really good at understanding I think he probably remembers a lot about his childhood because he writes kid characters really good I think that's what I'm saying though about him having a lighter touch you know and a lighter touch about humanity as well because Mm. you know when he writes Paul Sheldon in Misery Paul Sheldon has got a bit of caustic humour going on there you know dry Mm. wit if you like 
cynicism, yeah, but it's quite, yeah. can be quite funny. Well, there was some laugh out loud bits in the film, actually, wasn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I actually think the casting of the film's perfect as well. Yeah. You know? Jimmy Carr, man, brilliant. And Kathy, well, Kathy, Kathy Bates, Bates, what an actress. Amazing. You know, actress, was considered you know? for those, those parts, Dave, right? Um, Go like, on. James Caan was nowhere near considered at first because he, he basically went to Caan because no one else would take it. It was offered to William Hurt, I believe, first, but he was quite sniffy about it. You know, he's a bit of a, I think he's dead, isn't he? I don't, a bit of a snob I bastard. Oh, no, I, I was thinking of John Hurt then. I was about to do a John Hurt impression. No, William Hurt, he's a very serious actor. And it was offered to Dustin Hoffman... I can't think of else, but the Annie Wills character was offered to Bette Midler, which I thought would have been quite an interesting choice. She can be a really good actress, Bette Midler, but I think they chose the right one. I mean, Kathy Bates is brilliant. And she appeared in another book that came out, which I think this is where I started to go off King a bit in the 90s. I'd read a, I'd got a couple of books like, I think Needful Things was one, and then Dolores Claiborne. And I couldn't, I could, I've mean, read most of Needful Things, but I didn't finish, but I couldn't really start, couldn't really get going with Dolores Claiborne because it's basically one long monologue. No. It's like a police interview. It's just like one massive monologue. But the film is pretty good. I was going to say, I love the film. Yeah, and this that was directed by someone pretty decent, wasn't it? Was it? Uh... I know Chris Yeah, Paul's that was directed by Taylor Hackford, Dave, who did Officer and Gentleman. Was it? Yeah. Oh, Taylor Hackford's good. No, yeah. Mr. Uh, Helen Mirren. <laughs> oh, is he? Yeah, it's Helen Mirren's husband, isn't he? He's been married to her for years. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I thought I think that's a banging little film. Man. I loved mm. it. it. Obviously, it's a thriller. It's it's one of King's yeah. alternate works, really, because it's, it's not a horror fantasy in that respect. It's more of a thriller. No, and I think but, I prefer those. I, I sort of went off the supernatural stuff a bit and I prefer his ones that are set more in reality because he well, does think, it so well he's brilliant he's brilliant he at writing a straight novel I think two of his best things I and mean, only from again I mean everything everything from the from the king canon if you like comes from a much broader prospectus to me because it's always really from films and television adaptations so the ones that seem to work where there's that overlap between kind of like drama and fantasy if you want or horror are things like green mile and maybe the mist a little bit as well you know i think that's really good you know the way they work but i agree with you a lot of his stuff work is the more thriller based stuff like the body and and at pupil shawshank misery yeah i mean he's very he's just very good he's very good at story arcs and Telling a damn good yarn, really, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Um, another book that I did remember read, because, like I said, I've not read that many, is uh, where it's, it's got four novellas in. It's called Four Past Midnight. And it came out in, oh, yes. in the 90s. And there's uh, The Langoliers, which is the first story in the book. That's really good. And that is that was turned into a film. And also from yes, the book is a is a story called Secret Garden, Secret Window, and that was turned into Secret Window with Johnny Depp. And I love that. Yeah, that's pretty decent. Great little movie. 
Yeah, the other two, I think the last two, they're a bit bit of a slog, I remember. There was a sun dog and the library policeman, but I'd probably be interested in reading them again because they were really interesting stories. I don't think I ever saw the film The Langoliers. I remember it coming out. Yeah, it wasn't a very well known film. It might have even gone straight to video, to be honest. Was that the thing about the people on the plane and the plane? Yeah. 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 The past is sort of is chasing them. Or these Lang- no, the Langoliers are these like creatures that come to eat up the past. Okay, but right, it's really good. It's a really good idea. He's got a fantastic imagination, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, incredible imagination. Still, like I said, he's still churning out bloody books every single year. Sometimes two. Amazing. A lovely, uh, another lovely uh, anecdote about Stephen King that I heard, which was great, was that. Uh, he absolutely hates Halloween, apparently. Does he? And the reason he hates Halloween is that in his main home in Maine, it's like it's like uh, a light to flies. You know, all these people think, oh, yeah, it's Halloween. I know what we'll do. Let's go to Stephen King's house. Ah. So he gets thousands of people. Uh, he gets thousands of people every year congregating at his house Jesus on Halloween. Christ. They're never there anymore at Halloween, no. I think. And actually, I think his main home in uh, Maine is now going to be turned into like a, a library and uh, and a retreat, apparently, for writers. So they're going to have it as a retreat for other mm. writers to come and, and do their work, which is a nice idea. Very nice thought. Yeah. But also like a, 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 a an archive and a library and stuff. He has turned his career from what you would possibly say in a... I don't want to dismiss his work by calling him like a pulp writer, but certainly like a popularist horror writer into like a popular culture sensation, really, hasn't he? Yeah. That's the thing. And actually, you know, there are writers out there, other writers that think he's a great writer. He has his fans. I know like John Grisham's a big pal of his and John Grisham thinks he's, you know, he could do no wrong. But it's, it's, it's a remar- remarkable story, you know, mm. and it's a remarkable story of, of his sort of recovery from his from his addiction, too, because I think he was on a, in a bad way. And when you look at him in the early 80s, he, he did look a bit of a mess, really, you know. Well, he said, I think when he was writing Cujo, he, he was completely off his head on coke. And he says he don't remember anything <laughs> about writing it. I think the same with the Tommy <laughs> Knockers that appeared in the late 80s which is again another one i started didn't finish but it is is not considered one of his uh, it's not considered a good book to be honest the tommy knockers but um no but yeah there's so many that just pop into your head aren't they i mean children of the corn is another one which was from i think night shift the series of short stories now that was made into a decent film and sure. it's had about a billion sequels as well Incredible. And of course, like Firestart has just been redone recently as well. Yeah. Yeah. They've remade that again. I think that they did. They redid. This is it. Like you George say about C. Children Scott of the Corn. I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yes. I mean, ugh, crazy when you think about how much stuff. Forgive me for using the word churned out, but it is kind of like that. It's kind of like one man bloody horror factory, isn't it? Pull yeah. out all this work. And I think what's impressive is because so much of it has been uh, adapted into films. I don't think you can talk about Stephen King as a novelist without doing what we've done tonight, which is basically talk an awful lot about the film adaptations of his work, mm. because it's made it's made him this massive like 
popular culture icon in a way. Yeah. He's a very recognisable person. His work quite often precedes whoever the person is making the film. In fact, quite often we're talking about The Dead Zone, for example, and we're talking about The Green Mile. And then you suddenly realise, oh, God, yeah, that was Frank Darabond who did The Green Mile. That was David fucking Cronenberg who did <laughs> The Dead Zone. Yeah. But you're thinking first and foremost, Stephen King, it's a Stephen King story. Talking of directors, Dave, I wonder if you can guess who directed the Stephen King again adaptation under the pseudonym of Richard Bachman, The Running yeah. Man. Can you remember who directed that? The Running that? I know this. I It'll know this. blow your mind if you don't know I, it. I know exactly who this is, and it's a great link, this, actually, because this links perfectly with Salem's Lot. Because mm. Running Man was directed by Paul Michael Glazier and... Salem's Lot, the star of Salem's Lot was David Soul, Starsky and Hutch. I'm so impressed you knew that, Dave. Thank Paul you. Paul Michael Glazer. Hello, Paul Michael Glazer. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Starsk. That's not a bad film, is it? Again, a great idea, which uh, yeah. has been ripped off a few times. Well, isn't Backman stuff, Running Man and The Lawnmower Man? Uh, I think the lawnmower man was in night shift. He, Backman was thinner, which was made into a film. Uh, but lawnmower man is is a King adaptation. Yeah, it's in yeah. it's in night shift, I think. But it's nothing what? to do with the film. I mean, the night, the night shift story is is about I think a lawnmower. <laughs> Whereas yeah. I guess. It's something like that, but it's nothing to do with the film. That, that film was crazy, all this virtual reality stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. I've just got to do this. This is this is the factoid I've got to do tonight now. How many Stephen King stories have been have been transferred into film or television? Wow. Fuck me, it's about 48, isn't it? It's got to be something crazy like that. Oh, well, actually, I'm reading here, Dave, that Tommyknockers is being remade and the director is James Wan, who uh, did The Conjuring wow. and Saw. The Conjuring and Saw, yeah. yeah. That's mad, isn't it? So, again, it's been remade. All this King stuff is now being remade. Salem's again. Lot is. Yeah, Salem's Lot's coming out again, yeah. Mm. In fact, it was supposed to come out this year and they've, they've pelled it back, haven't they? Right. And that's, and it's, that, that's not the... That is the second time, I think, because it was done in the 90s with Rutger Hauer and Rob Lowe oh, in the yeah. lead, that David Soul. It's mad. So it's not just the amount of times his work's been made, but they've been remade on multiple occasions. I have to watch The Stand, I think, though. I think I have to watch the miniseries. Oh, yeah, that's some... coming out, isn't it? Yeah, that I was going to say. But the original uh, miniseries in the 90s was quite good, I think, from what yeah. people say. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but again, they're redoing the bloody stand. They've yes. redone it. This constant idea of Hollywood of remaking already classic things um, is always a concern. And and this latest Salem's Lot, uh, it bothers me a little bit really because I loved the 1979 television version. I thought it was fantastic. I have great memories of it when I was a kid. Just like the uh, the television version of it. Both, of course, were yeah. television three part miniseries if you like really great and successful of course hollywood's got to get hold of it again it's all part of this idea of familiarity isn't it familiarity 
might mean that one generation of a family talks about the story to another to a younger generation and the younger generation go out and watch it mm-hmm. you know but it's clever it's easy marketing isn't it for hollywood yeah. to do this yeah but it's a shame they have to do it i think real shame well i'm trying to get my daughter to watch the miniseries of it because uh i think she she wants to but she's a bit scared because she has heard it's a bit scarier yeah the film and itself the, isn't that yeah. interesting because to me the film looks kind of horrific in the way the clown the pennywise character sort of presents himself but the, the truth is it really is less is more and that is right because the way it's done in the miniseries it creeps you out you know yes. it absolutely creeps you out tim curry's performance is astonishing in it it is and that's what it's all about you know cgi can do that no cgi can deliver a great weird quirky performance he's a go-to guy for a lot of filmmakers isn't he yeah and it's because they know they've got they've got a, they've got a chunk of a, a story idea that's really strong and then they can mold it in their own way as a, as a filmmaker yeah. and i think like i was saying before for me is somebody that you get into when you're quite young when you're a teenager and you you gravitate sure. towards horror stuff and he probably has has influenced so many filmmakers. I know he's influenced a lot of musicians. Oh, sure. As well, it's amazing, isn't it? He has. Mm. He, so that in itself is broadened his popular culture influence. Do you remember he got he got knocked down by a truck? Oh my God! We didn't. Uh, oh my God! We didn't talk about it. Nearly died. It's about twenty no. years ago. Was it yeah. late nineties or early two thousands? That's right. The the guy just lost control of the vehicle and he was just walking on the pavement when he was just going about his business. Yes. Yeah. This guy lost well, control of the vehicle. One thing I read was that he bought the truck. Yes. That knocked him down because he didn't want yes. it being sold on eBay. That's exactly what I heard too, yeah. Yeah, which is a pretty sickening thought, isn't it? But I'm sure somebody would have done it. I think that was a genius step that he bought it. Yeah. 1500 quid it cost i was gonna say he didn't pay a lot for it either but he saved himself a lot of uh, anguish because i think mm. he's in a great deal of pain for a long time after the accident yeah massively terrible, terrible like sciatic pains and stuff nerve damage that he'd suffered i think he's a lot better now but uh he yeah. was in a bad way wasn't he, he was yeah i think he way. broke his leg really badly his hip and his pelvis yeah but so glad he, he recovered and we've still got the fella you know yeah. And he's always on good form. And uh, uh, any listener out there, I would say, go onto YouTube, type in Stephen King and just look at the list of interviews. And they're they're all good. He's always a good listen. He's got great anecdotes about, uh, you know, his career, his family life. I mean, they were very poor. He was brought by his mum. You know, his dad buggered off from a very early yeah. age. And uh, he's a kind of um, the American dream, isn't he? Yeah. You know, yeah. The poor kid Put who Maine on the map through. as well, hasn't he? That, that, I think that's fabulous. That's another thing that he he creates all his stories, doesn't he? Based around uh, Derry Ma- and Castle yeah, Rock. Castle Rock, is yeah, made up, but this yes. is set in Maine. All set in Maine. And what I love uh, about some of his story ideas, I believe, in the books, and I only say this from reading, from researching this, is that he um, he hints at other stories occasionally. In one story. What, like I think stories he wrote? Yeah, so he talked yeah. about, well, it, yeah. it, it, there was a mad dog, wasn't there, in such and such a place? And it, referencing Cujo yeah, from a different I novel, think, you know. I've not looked into it properly, but 
Randall Flagg, who was a character in The Stand, has apparently appeared in a few other books as well. Maybe, if I'm right, I'm thinking the Dark Tower series. So he's created this whole world, hasn't he? Yes, he's created a world. The thing I wanted to say as well that that, uh, had popped into my head was um, I was watching this speech he was giving at some university. No wonder he's so successful because he really works at it. You know, goes around university, gives lectures. He's very dynamic and very charismatic in his speech givings. You know, he really holds an audience. He's great at an anecdote. And he was telling this story about this uncle he had who um, was really into divining. This was when he was a kid. And him and his brother David would go, you know, go out with him and he with his divining rods. And uh, or maybe David didn't, maybe because he was a bit older, wasn't he? Yes, uh, David King, um, uh, I think he's adopted, you know. I think his older brother was adopted. But anyway, no, that's another right. story. Um, but you know what Stephen King's dad's name was, don't you? Mm. you it's hilarious. It's Mervyn. No, 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 Mervyn King is good. He was a dart player. It's even better than that, mate. His dad's name was Don King. <laughs> oh, right. Fantastic. <laughs> ah! I'm going to make Muhammad Ali the best fighter in the world with the rumble in the jungle. No, it's the wrong Don King. Wrong oh, yeah. So this uncle of his would go out uh, divining for water and he'd go out with his divining rods and he said it was unbelievable how come they would just fly down. And he even said, keep a distance from me because when they go, I can barely control them, the, the, the actual force that they use. Boom. And then King said that he, he used them. He said, hey, you take them, you do it. He walked on and he said it was unbelievable the force that these rods pointed down to the earth. Um, right. And I think this sort of opened his mind to this idea that there are other things. You know, this was this was something that kind of gave him a fascination into what one might call the paranormal, I think. Oh, yeah, that's this interesting. Was, yeah, I know. It's a fantastic little story that I heard whilst watching a speech of his on, on uh, YouTube quite a long time ago to this speech. I think it was like we're talking very early 80s you know it'd become this phenomenon by then but it was like only four years in or something like that yeah. not like the decades and decades that we've had to uh i nearly said that we've had to endure stephen king but obviously we've loved the works of stephen king and it's pretty pretty phenomenal really when you think about the the longevity of the man's success and, and to think it was all sparked off by his, his little walk in the park while he's having to think about girls periods <laughs> So just to end, Dave, um, what are your top five or top three film adaptations? That is a brilliant, brilliant. brilliant probably question. put you on the spot a bit. You have a bit, but it'll probably change. Right. That is great. That is greatly. OK. So I'm going to say I'm in no particular order. Or do you want them in order? Yeah, in order. <laughs> Shit. Okay, that's the thing. Okay, so in fifth place, I would say. Oh god, this is really hard. But I'm gonna have to say it's probably the Dead Zone. I love it, but it's probably in fifth yeah. place. In fourth place, I'm gonna say it's going to be the green mile okay in third place i'm going to say misery i think yeah in second place shawshank redemption and in 
first place, I'm going to say. Oh, no, got to change that. Are we talking films? Yeah. All right, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to cheat a little bit. Shawshank Redemption 2 and then The Shining. But my favourite TV adaptations are in second place, It, and without doubt in first place, It's Your Faith Against His Faith. Come on, shaman. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Barlow, Mr. Barlow. It's got to be Salem's Lot. Fucking love Salem's Lot. What about you, mate? Right, okay, so I'm going to say number five, Stand By Me. Yeah. Number four, The Dead Zone. Three, Misery. Yeah, brilliant. Two, The Shining. Yeah. And number one, Christine. Oh, I I feel like... A terrible human being now. No, don't, Dave. Uh, you've got, got the you've it. got the joy of uh, watching that on your box, on your system. Get it loaded we, up. I'd like to see that the, the kings. I'd like to see again that I quite enjoyed, and would like to know if I in, would enjoy them again now. One would be to see Dolores Claiborne again. I'd like to see that again because it's been a long time since I've seen it. Yeah. And what's the one with um, Ed Harris and Max von Sydow in the film? Yeah, that's Needful Things. Needful Things. Yeah, yeah. that's not a bad film. That was one book I gave up on. And I think it was the... Yeah, I remember. I read most of it, but I, I don't know. It just didn't didn't interest me that much. I couldn't yeah. finish it. But it's a good film. Yeah. But you know what's interesting as well to talking about, King, is like talking about sort of... Um, popular culture reference and influence over actual events we talked about the politician character in the dead zone yeah greg stilson greg greg stilson's character who who resonates hugely with trumpism and donald trump Mm -hmm. and um i also think that the stand is very very poignant because of course it's based it's based around the idea of a flu pandemic isn't it yes <laughs> you know so the guy has hit on things that uh now of course you could say well he's a popularist writer and he comes up with sort of ideas like this but you know he's he's been kind of on the money with quite a few things and he's had mm-hmm. his influence has been huge as well of course yeah brilliant man brilliant work right Indeed. thanks dave excellent chat brilliant chat and listeners, please get in touch with your recommendations for King Books and King Adaptations. Yeah. Um, and put a fucking like out for us. Put the word out there. We want you guys to say, hey, have you heard Something Wicked podcast? It's great. It's all over the place. They do lots of different subjects. And if you do that, we'll love you forever. You know? And look, we, we haven't even minded you about a Patreon or anything like that. We've no. just. Managed- we haven't even done anything like that because we know we've not got loads of people listening to us, but we we love it. We do it because we love it and we're trying to entertain and we, we know we're doing something right because we're getting some good feedback. So for God's sake, come on, you crazy yeah, bastards. It. it does, it does uh, make us feel very good. Yeah, we just want a little bit of warm feeling inside from nice yeah. comments about what we're doing. All right. All the best, Dave. All the best, listeners. Until next time. I was warped as a child. (laughs) Uh, 
So, a lot of horror comics in my past, and a lot of uh, of horror movies and yeah. uh, that sort of thing. And uh, it did. It, it warped me as a kid. And uh, seriously, but I, I, yeah, 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 seriously, uh, warped me. And uh, the thing is, I think that uh, see, they know. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the world as it is today, though, I think if you don't have a few warps in your record, you can't get along. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's one of the uh, great appeals that uh, the horror story has. There's been a lot of uh, analysis, mm -hmm. a lot of it almost ludicrous, it seems to me, about horror in the wake of uh, the big hits like uh, George's Dawn of the Dead and, and Ghost Story and The Shining and all of that sort of thing. And, and really, I think what a lot of it is is a sort of harmless blow-off for anxieties and bad feelings. Yeah.